pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, I pray now that even as we have worshipped that you are the God who is able, able to save, I pray that you would now work in us. I pray for this word that it would uh, run among us and that we would in fact honor us, that you would take away every obstacle to our believing. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 2 Thessalonians and chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, please. Let's hear the word of God. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And to the steadfastness of Christ. We have another prayer here in... uh, this letter, uh, these two letters together, we find Paul either announcing that he has prayed for them, praying for them, or asking them to pray for him. We find this almost continuously. This is two short letters, but over and over again, we, we find references to prayers and to praying. And here we have, have two. We have Paul asking this church to pray for him and for them, really, for those on his team. And also, he offers a prayer at the very end, really, for them. So we we find two aspects of what we've been finding all along. What strikes me as I read through the scripture is that believers are expected, in fact, commanded to pray. I mean, it just runs through it. You can't read through the scripture without finding people praying or having God tell us that we ought to pray and even instructing us on how to pray. Our Lord Jesus probably modeled that or showed that more than anybody in, in, in his own praying and his own teaching about our prayers. But then what strikes me about my own life and about others that I talk to uh, about living out this life that we're called to is that we find prayer to be difficult. That is to say, it's difficult for us often to sustain real, what we think at least, is real praying. It's just a difficult thing. And I'm not quite sure why, though I experience it as well. It could be, and this is my biggest fear of all, it could be that we actually think that we're able to handle life. And that we're able to handle it really without consulting God very often. That we just think, well, we can handle most things that come our way, so why stop and pray about these things? Because it seems to be going all right, generally speaking. And when a difficulty comes, we think through it, we plan through it, we make a plan, we carry it out, and we normally solve those problems. At least we think that we do. And so we wonder, no wonder we don't pray. I hope that isn't true. I suspect in part it is. It could be that we have uh, false expectations about praying. Uh, we think in some sense, before we pray, we somehow have to feel it. You know, we got to feel it. And then we can really pray. And so we don't feel it, then we don't pray. And we don't usually feel it, so we don't usually pray. And so 
wondering about that, or we, we, you know, I wonder about these expectations concerning our prayers. We wonder too, and this is a little perhaps more deep and more into the mystery, even the enigma of praying. God is really sovereign. Why should we pray? If he's the one who ordains all that will come to pass, then why should we pray about that which is to come to pass when it's already been ordained? Can we really change God's mind? Is that what praying is all about? And if he's already ordained it, then, and we can't change his mind about it, then can our praying really impact, influence, change things? And if God is wise, then why does he need our counsel, our suggestions about what we ought, what he ought to be doing, right? And if, as we read last Sunday, if God is the one who elects those who are being saved, and even as we think about praying for those who are not believers, then, then how could that have any impact at all if God is the one who elects, if God's the one who really saves? It's really up to him if he's the one who really does it. And so the question is, why then pray if, if all that is true? One of my theology professors wrote a piece once. It's called Prayer, the Prelude to Revival. His name's Roger Nicole. He's passed away, so I can quote him now. But uh, he's a dear man. In fact, he was known and introduced by many of the great theologians of our day as, as the greatest theologian, but he's relatively unknown because he, I think, in a sense, chose to be. Um, there's a little section in this paper called Why... What does prayer change? I want to read you a couple of paragraphs. We have to listen. And you have to know, too, that he writes a bit sometimes awkwardly because he was from Switzerland and he was a French-speaking Swiss. And he said that his mother always said he spoke French with an English accent. And we all heard him and he spoke English with a French accent. And so sometimes he writes kind of funny. So just, just listen. He says, when we consider prayer... There are questions which often are disturbing to the minds of some people. The first question is, do you think that you can really change the mind of God? That is, can prayer make God modify his sovereign plan? There are people who feel that unless you're prepared to say this, there is no great value in prayer. That is, unless you can change the mind of God, then why pray? I don't know what the reader's particular idea on this subject may be, but I would like to say that if you believe you can change the mind of God through prayer... I hope you're using some discretion. If, if that is the power you have, it is certainly a most dangerous thing. Surely God does not need our counsel in order to set up what is desirable. Surely God, whose knowledge penetrates all minds and hearts, does not need to have us intervene to tell him what he ought to do. The thought that we're changing the mind of God by our prayers is a terrifying concept. I'll be frank to confess that if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. I would have to say, how can I presume, with the limitations of my own mind and the corruptions of my own heart, how can I presume to interfere in the counsels of the Almighty? It is almost as if you were to introduce someone who is utterly ignorant of electronics to a weapons plant in which, by pushing certain buttons, one might precipitate an explosion. You say... Go ahead and push buttons. Never mind what happens. No. 
there is comfort for the child of God in being assured that our prayers will not change God's mind. This is not what is involved in prayer. We're not in danger of precipitating explosions by some rash desire on our part. But then people say, if you cannot change God's mind, what's the point of praying? If prayer does not change things, then prayer is worthless. Then he says this. Have you perhaps noticed that I changed the formula? I did not say change the mind of God, but change things. I never said that prayer doesn't change things. Prayer does change things, but it does not change the mind of God. The reason prayer changes things but does not change God is that he has appointed prayer as an effectual means for accomplishing his own purpose. This effectual means is essential for, the, for this accomplishment. When we have a right understanding of the sovereignty of God, we recognize that God has established the plan in which not only the effects, but also the causes are ordained. We cannot disconnect the causes from the effects or the effects from the causes. Take a breath. I'm going to read another paragraph. I could have just told you this, but I, he does it better. For example, and I've heard him give this lecture, so I'll do it what he did. He said, for example, if I lift a book in your sight, for example, I lift a book in your sight. Because the book has been risen into the air, I'm in a position to say, God has ordained that it should get to this particular place. Now, he's taller than me, so his place was up here, all right? But you've got to imagine that. Um, he must have ordained it because that's where the book is. But notice, God did not ordain for the book to rise all by itself. He ordained that it should rise at the end of my hand. He ordained that I should have strength in my arm to lift it. He ordained that I should choose this particular book in order to illustrate this particular point. There's a connection between the book's rising and the subject I wish to develop. All these things are tied up together. There were no lecture. There would be no point of illustrating the power of second causes. If there was no desire to illustrate the power of second causes, my hands would have remained at my side. If my hand had remained at my side, the book would not have risen. I think I can argue in this way. God, however, ordained that there should be this lecture, ordained that there should be a desire to show the correlation of causes and effects in his sovereign plan, that this particular illustration should come to my mind, and that I should implement it by the strength that he has given me. One cannot say, if you hadn't touched it, it would have risen anyway, because God did not ordain that it should rise anyway. He ordained that the book should rise through my hand. And this is exactly the case with prayer. Prayer is an effectual, secondary cause that God has related to the effects involved. Just as the activity of human beings on earth is, is, is related to the effects that are produced, just as the book rising is related to the hand lifting, so are the effects of prayer related to the prayer that's offered. So although prayer doesn't change the mind of God, it does change things. God has appointed change through prayer, even through the way in which the cause is related to the effect. I'm sorry, even though the way in which the cause is related to the effect is not perfectly clear to us. See, prayer 
is the means through which, prayer is a means through which, God accomplishes his purposes. He's ordained the end. He's also ordained the way to get there. And so he says that we are to pray. And when we pray, you see, we're working by his ordination to bring about his appointed ends. Now we know these means, for instance, in the process of our someone coming to salvation. We know that the primary means through which a person believes is by way of the word of God. We know that for someone to believe they have to hear the gospel. Uh, Paul lays this out in the middle of Romans chapter 10. He says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how can they call unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? That's, that's it, isn't it? And then he ends that by saying... Um, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so you see, for someone to be saved, then this word must come to them. And then you might say, well, what about these elect who God has chosen to be saved? What if nobody ever preaches to them? Then they won't be saved. And so that's true. If no one preaches to them, they won't be saved, but someone will. Why? Because God has ordained that they will hear and believe. Well, to hear and believe, someone must be sent to preach. And so someone will. And so we mustn't ever say, well, it doesn't matter if we declare the gospel or not. Oh, yes, it does. That's the means by which people will be saved. Just in case, just in the same way, I have to lift the book. It's going to be lifted. It's not going to rise on its own. God has ordained the lifting of the book, you see. He's ordained the word to bring to faith. But then, you see, he's also ordained prayer, as we see in this particular passage, this opening verse of chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians, where we see it, that he's ordained prayer as a means as well. In fact, we, we noticed this before in Ephesians in chapter 6. And write this until after, but uh, he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. But, but, but in Ephesians chapter 6, he's talking about, this, about the weapons of our warfare, as we like to say, the armor of God. And, and, and these armor pieces are all defensive, really, except for two, two that go together, it appears. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Ah, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, there's a comma there after which is the word of God, praying at all times. The the, the ideas, though, go together. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying. When we take up the word of God, we should always be praying. You know this. When you pick up the Bible to read it, I hope you're praying. God, help me understand this. 
God overcome any resistance that I would have to this word. God, God enable me to believe this. And why do you pray that? You pray that because you know your own heart. You know your own reluctance. You know your own rebellion. You know all of that. And so you should take up this word always praying. And, and we do the very same thing when we take up this word to declare it to others, to speak it to others. We should take it up praying. When we share the gospel, we should be praying. Right? Both of those together. Take up the sword of the spirit praying. Praying what? That God will overcome the resistance to hearing this to hearing this word. In fact, that's what we have here in chapter 3. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. He says, he says pray for this. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and, and be honored, as happened among you. Literally, we could translate this, and I like this better, because this is how I'll probably use it as I talk this morning. He says, he says, pray that the word, the message of the gospel, the word of God will run and be glorified. Will run. Now, Paul may have gotten that expression from the psalmist who says that the word of God runs swiftly. Uh, it could have been that he was in Corinth and they loved the games, if you will, the pre- and post-Olympic games and all those kinds of things. And they hosted there in Corinth. And, and so it would be a common image, a runner. And he's, he's not equating himself with a runner, but he's equating the word, the gospel, the word of the Lord, with a, as a runner. He says, this word runs, you see. And he says, and it gets to the end and wins. It's successful. And so when it wins, then it gets the crown. It's glorified. It's honored as the very word of God. And he says, this happened among you. I mean, this did happen among them. When, when Paul came to, to Thessalonica, it was great and grand and glorious. The word of God really did run through them and speedily. He was only with them a few weeks, and yet great things happened in the midst of that. And you get the impression, at least I do, forgive the editorial moments here, but I get the impression as I'm reading this, and Paul's in Corinth, and he's writing to the people in Thessalonica, and he's thinking, it's really tough here in Corinth. He stayed there a year and a half. And he had to write back to them two long letters and probably a third that we don't have. And, 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 and he's thinking, these people in Corinth, I wish they were like you. This is really difficult here. So pray that, the, that this word runs and it's honored and glorified as it was with you. Because you see, you remember that when the word came to the church in Thessalonica, they received it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. That's how the word of God is glorified. And see, when we're sharing this truth with ourselves, with our children, with our friends, however it is, when we're sharing this word, we should be praying, God, make this word run, really run, and enable it to be glorified, to be honored. That is, help them, enable them to see this word, not as mine, but as yours, that it really impresses upon them. I mean, why do you believe? Why do you have the confidence to really stake your whole life on this gospel? It isn't because you think it's my idea or the person even who shared it with you, their idea, or the person you read it from, their idea, but you actually have come to believe that this is from God. And so that's what he's praying. He says, pray. Take up this word. Take up this word, pray it. 
And so, so, so we pray for us. It runs. It just, and it's glorified. And then you see it had its full effect. You remember from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You've read it so many times. We don't mean to go there. You should have it in your head. That 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says that, that I give thanks for you, for your faith, for your love, for your hope. Why? Because your faith is working. That is, you're, you're obeying. I see it. Your, your love is serving. It's laboring. It's sacrificing for the good of others. And your hope is enabling you to persevere. Oh, that's the, the glory of the word of God. When we really believe it, when we really know that this is the word of God, it brings faith to us and enables us to, to obey. It brings faith to us and, and causes us to love, you see. So we're willing to sacrifice because we get it. We understand the life that we're to live. And, and it brings us such hope that we're able to persevere, even as he said in the midst of suffering. Not only that, he says, the word of God was glorified among you because you received it with great joy. It was the joy of your life, in the, even in the midst of suffering, even though your friends and neighbors turned against you when you believed this. But, but, but you received it with great joy because you knew it to be the word of God. It brought deep faith and, and in love increasing in you as well as great hope that you could persevere through, through anything till Jesus comes. It, it caused you to repent because it said you turned away from idols. You turned away from everything else that you once held dear, if you will. Dear in the sense that you thought this was life. Dear in the sense that you thought this defined you. Dear in the sense that you thought this would lead you and guide you. And you left that behind. You repented and turned to serve the true and living God. He says, pray that for us, as we take the message of this gospel, that it runs like it did with you. And that it, it's honored like it was honored by you. See, when I think about that, when I think I'm praying like that, what do I think about that I should, I should pray really? Well, I should pray that, that God would work in the hearts of people, most especially my own. See, if this word of God is really going to run and I'm going to take it, if you will, if I'm the means through which I'm going to take this, whether it's to my children in the context of my family, whether it's to friends and neighbors or wherever God calls us to go, however this word of God is to run and however I'm to take it, and, and I need to see the glory of God. See, that's the key motivation for speaking the truth of Christ been asked millions of times. It's an exaggeration, so only a half a million times. It motivates people to speak the truth about Christ. And the key motivation is first and foremost our love for him. Anything else would be idolatry. If we did it for any other reason, out of love for him, it would be idolatry. We're putting somebody else in the place of God. And so what I must see really is the glory of Christ. I must see him. And when I see the glory of Christ, then I realize he's glorious. And then I realize he's worthy to be spoken of. You see, we, we glorify so much culturally. I mean, we, we glorify our sports teams because they played so great. Well, not always. They played so great that, that we want to tell people about it. We, we talk to strangers. When I meet people and I tell them I'm from Lawrence, Kansas, the immediate thing, they want to talk to me about the basketball team. Because the basketball team is glorious generally and there's always something to talk about they want to know about that and i'm happy to talk to them about it 
But I need to see, really, don't I, the glory of Christ so that I really believe that, that, that if people could catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ, they would be saved. Everything would change. I didn't ask you if I could use this illustration, but I think it's okay. When my wife is on an airplane, she pretty much can't wait to, tell, to show people pictures of the grandchildren. I mean, she's, she's like six million on her phone. And all of, you just have to mention, or if there's a child running through. Why does she do that? Because her grandchildren to her, to us, are glorious. She actually thinks that if someone can catch a glimpse of these children, they'll be happy. And they'll turn to her and say, thank you so much for showing me. Now they do that, but they're thinking, I got to get away from this lady. But, 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 but that's what they're thinking. You see, it's a, there's a sense in which, if I could use that silly illustration, there's a sense in which that's how we're to be of Christ, you see. That's the way I'm to be of Christ. To know his glory, to see him as so glorious, to really be convinced that as he's everything to me, that he's to be everything for them. And if he's everything to them, then all their life will change and all for the better eternally, you see. So I need to pray the word of God is to run and be honored. I first, I need to pray for me, right? That I know that Christ is glorious. And then I need to pray that God will enable me not only to love God, but to love them and to see their unbelief as, as tragic and dangerous so that then I can love them in such a way as to be willing to share all of this you see, even with, even with them. And then I need to pray for boldness. You know, Paul asks at the end of this passage in Ephesians 6, he says, pray that I would have boldness. And I read that and I, it just astounds me because when I read about Paul, there isn't anybody I think more bold than he is. I mean, he stands up there and gets, gets pelted regularly because of the things that he says. He doesn't seem to me to need boldness. I think if you asked him, he would say, the reason I can do that is because God gives me that boldness. And so I ask that people would pray if the means is this word to spread and and to run, and if I'm carrying it, if you will, then you, you need to pray for me, that I would have the boldness in the midst of all of this in order to share this. He said to the church in Thessalonica in chapter two, first letter, Uh, The way the NIV puts it is, I dared to share the gospel with you in spite of strong opposition. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray for opportunity. Peter says, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that's within you. When you're asked, pray that you're asked. I know that we're in situations all the time where we're constrained. We really can't work situation, even some family situations, whatever it is. We know that we just can't bring up the gospel willy-nilly in this moment at this time. And, and maybe ever in this context, just because of the way it's defined. And we understand that. We understand that being respectful in that situation means that, that I, I really don't have opportunity in order to share of Christ there And so what do you do? You pray that someone will ask you. Someone will give the freedom, if you will. And so we need to pray that God would give us opportunity and pray that we'd be ready 
to be able to share the hope that's in us. And we should pray that we live as hopeful people in the midst of other people who have no hope, really. That they see hope in us and that motivates them in certain times to ask us about that hope. And then some of us need to pray that God will give us a certain grace to be willing to sacrifice home, sacrifice comfort, sacrifice all of that, and go and run with this, with this gospel. You see. And then, of course, we, we need to pray that it's honored. And the difficulty there, you see, is there are obstacles to this word of God being honored. Sin exists. It's real. Sin works in us to cause us to say no to God. And so what we need to do is pray that God will overcome our and other people's sins so that they can receive this word so it can be glorified in their life so they can see it not as the word of men but as the word of God so they can bring faith to them. We know, we know what sin does. Genesis 6-5. Thoughts and inclinations of our hearts are evil continuously. Jeremiah 17. That our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can trust our own hearts? Our hearts lie to us. We can't even trust our own hearts. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And again, when he says men, he means us, right? It's true for us. And so that loving of darkness has to be overcome before we can believe. He says we, we can't see the kingdom of God. We must be born again. Our minds are hostile towards God, he writes to the church in Rome. No one seeks God, he writes to the church in Rome. He writes to the church in Ephesus. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he writes to that same church, saying that our minds are futile. We can't really get it. We can't really think. Write thoughts after God. And so you take all of that, we're hopeless with this gospel before them. Unless God does a work. And so we pray, as Ezekiel promised, we pray that God will take out hearts of stone and put in a heart of flesh that we may believe. We pray that God will write his law upon our hearts and minds, change our inclinations. We pray that God would overcome our love for darkness, that we might receive and believe this light, that he would give us new life so that we may believe, that he would take out our, this hostility of our minds and enable us to hear the truth of the gospel and really believe. We pray like that. I know our inclination often is, oh God, pray that the gospel will come to so-and-so so they may hear it. And that's great to pray. It has to get there. But don't stop, please. Don't stop with just the gospel getting there because the gospel just getting there without a change of heart will just bounce off or make them more angry. So pray, too, that this word is honored by them, that it runs, it gets to them, and then it's honored by them, that they see it, they hear it as the word of God, not as the word of men, that it brings faith and love and hope to them, and it causes them to repent, to turn away from, and to turn to God. You see, pray deeply like that. And then God, and then Paul says, there are obstacles, you know, too. He says... Pray also that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. He says, you know, when the gospel's running and being honored, it isn't all sweetness and cream. There always is opposition. You can read about this opposition all throughout the scripture, Romans 12. I'm sorry, Revelation 12. 
speaks of it in, in sort of figurative and apocalyptic terms of this dragon, Satan, who's hurled down because of the crucifixion of Jesus. And now he's angry, he's filled with fury, and he comes after the church, all those who obey the commandments of God and who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 13 of Revelation speaks of, of these beasts from the, from the sea and from the earth, these human beings through which he, the Satan is in some sense animated and evil comes. And we see this mysterious, this mystery of lawlessness and the spirit of Antichrist and all of that behind all of this. Not all believe in Paul knew that. The church in Thessalonica knew that. Some of us know that. Many of us are becoming acquainted again with that. And so in the midst of this, Paul prays that all the obstacles to the running and the honoring of the gospel would be taken away, that they'd be delivered from that. Now, when I hear that and when I pray that, I pray, God, make all the people who don't like me go away. But we realized that didn't happen in Paul's life. Everywhere he went, this kept happening. And so what was really deliverance for him? I think deliverance for Paul was that the gospel wouldn't be impeded by these people. Deliverance meant I could stand in the midst of this and still declare the gospel. Deliverance meant I would remain faithful to this gospel and, and we would see that it would grow and spread and be honored in spite of these enemies. So God, deliver us. Keep us faithful in the, midst of, in the midst of all of this, and we must pray that as well. Because you see, this isn't a clean fight. Our enemy is deceitful. Our enemy isn't honest. We see it even within the context of the church. Same Bible, yet some do not hold to its authority. Same words, yet they're redefined. Same celebrations, different meaning Christmas, yet without a virgin-born Savior. A Jesus, though not one who performs miracles, but only teaches well. A Good Friday with a death, but not an atoning death for the sins of sinners, only an example of love and sacrifice. An Easter without a real resurrection, an ascension without a sovereign ruling Lord, a Pentecost without the personal power of the Holy Spirit. Devious. In fact, perhaps the greatest deception is the one that's often perpetrated upon me for me to think that I live in such spiritually good times that I forget that I'm in a battle. So I don't pray. Not to mention a culture that seems to turn gradually and then all of a sudden, we realize how much has been lost. So here we are. So Paul prays, we pray, that through us, this has got to be, you see, always, and especially now and in the days ahead, 
This has got to be our prayer as a church. It's got to be our prayer for our children. That the message of the gospel, that the word of God would run. No obstacles would run directly to them. And that they would honor it, glorify it. It would be glorified in their life that our children would receive this word, not as the word of men, but the word of God. That it would bring faith. That it would bring love. It would bring joy, hope. It would bring repentance, you see. All of that. True in our own lives, you see. It's got to be true for us. And then we pray that it would run from us through the community, through our neighborhoods, the context of extended family, and even to the world. We must pray this. If we're to be the church of Jesus Christ, you see. And then he says this. He says, but not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He'll establish you and guard you against the evil one. So this great promise, we'll come back to that next week. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command. And so, so Paul's saying that he's trusting then that even though some do not have faith, the Lord is always faithful to his word and he'll establish you. That is, he'll ground you in this. He'll ground you so you won't be moved and he'll guard you against the evil one. And he says, I have confidence, always great expression, in the Lord, right? I have confidence in the Lord because the Lord is good and he'll help you. That you, are, that, 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 that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And then he finally prays this for them. His prayer for them is this. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, I must confess, I don't know why it's doing that either, Jeff, but it just is. It's in my pocket. That's probably not a good place for it. Let me move it. Is that better? Whoa. It's the evil one again. That's what we blame all our... Sound problems on. Anyway, bear with us. But that's one of those great expressions, at least for me. It's rather poetic, at least it's, it is in poetry. But it's rather, I mean, I love that expression. I love to keep that in my mind. That the Lord would direct our hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. It's one of those expressions I just like to roll around in my head, even before I know what it means, even before I think too much about it. It just sounds wonderful, doesn't it? That my heart would be directed. When he says direct, what he means is that he would take away any roadblock, that he would make the, 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 the road straight, that he would unclog all the arteries of my heart, there'd be no barrier at all, that he would direct me, direct me, that my focus of my attention, my affections, every place that I make decisions, all of my meditations, he would direct me right to the love of God and the perseverance of Jesus. Now, this prayer is directed to the Lord, that is, to Jesus. It isn't directed to the Father, but it's directed to Jesus. Right? Notice, may the Lord. And I think the reason he's directing this to Jesus, it's... I don't know what to do with this thing. It's impossible for us to know anything at all about the love of God without knowing about 
Jesus. It's through Christ that we really come to know the love of God, isn't it? And so he directs this prayer to Jesus. And so what he says to us is, Lord Jesus, take away any obstacle, any roadblock, anything at all that might be at all keeping us from seeing the love of God and my own perseverance. Now, why does he put it like that? The perseverance of Jesus. Well, because, you see, it was the very perseverance of Jesus that reveals to us the love of God. Jesus persevered in life. Again, for him, it wasn't all sweetness and cream either, right? He persevered. Here is the Lord of glory ending up coming to be the babe in Bethlehem, born in this manger. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his right at that period of time to, to the glory that was due him. This glorious God the Son was not so glorious in this manger. And then he took our lives, in a sense, upon himself, being baptized, identifying himself with our need for repentance. And, and, he, and he walks through the course of the earth. And in the midst of that, here is the Lord of glory being distrusted, being tested, being betrayed, and being mocked, being beaten, being forsaken, dying. When we see that, what are we to see? We're to see the very love of God. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And after giving thanks, he took bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And you see, when we think of this death of Jesus, we think of this one who persevered for us and we're directed to the love of God. And he says, you see, that's what's really necessary. If this gospel's to run, if it's to be honored, then the people of God must know the love of God. Because you see, that's what we're proclaiming. That's the message, isn't it? That's the gloriousness of it all. That's what incites me to, to be willing to share it because this is what is necessary. This is what is needed. This is what transformed my life knowing that I was loved by him through and because of the life of Jesus. And you see, when I'm directed to it, when I'm directed to the love of God, the perseverance of Jesus, it causes me to love him. It causes me to trust him. It enables me to persevere. It enables me to love. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. But even as we come to this table, this table that has the very direct goal of directing us to the love of God 
and the perseverance of Jesus. We pray, Jesus, that we would know your very presence among us. That you're as real to us as this bread and juice is. That you're as close to us as this bread and juice is even as it goes within us. And we know that your presence among us is the result of the love of God. This electing, effective love of God that saves us. We know that you've overcome every resistance that we have. We know that you've taken out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. We know that you have changed the deceit of our own heart. That we would hear the truth and believe that you've caused us not to love darkness, but to love light. That you've given us new life by your spirit that we may believe. So Father, we pray that even now as we come to this table that we would know the love of God. Direct us to it. Don't let anything get in our way. Don't let any question come to mind. Don't let any resistance be there. Take all of that away that we would have a clear path to the love of God even as we think of the life of our Lord Jesus. Even as we think of you, Lord Jesus, who gave yourself for us. Father, work all of this in us that we may diligently pray that the word of God would run and be honored for it's honored among us. And this we pray in Jesus' name.